Hey Rodney, did you know Slack's been a part of the Ready for as long as I have? You mean like back in the Bryant Park days? You know it. Even when there were only a couple of us working out of a cafe in Midtown, Slack is where we came together to tackle the future of work. Over eight years later, we're fully decentralized across eight time zones, and we still do it all with Slack. That's right, because it's the AI-powered platform for growing your business, keeping your teams connected, and making work legitimately simpler. Now you can get up to speed on a new project with one-click summaries or find exactly what you need, when you need it, with an AI-supercharged search function. It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future. Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Aaron Dignan, and I'm joined by my co-host, Rodney Evans. Hey there. We're also joined today by none other than Frederick Leloux, the author of Reinventing Organizations, where those words come from, um, (laughs) who has been a huge influence on me and our work at The Ready. So we're pretty excited about this one. Uh, Fred, welcome to the show. Yeah, it's so good to be with you. On today's episode, we're going to talk about probably a lot of things, uh, but centrally, where are we in this moment and this movement of evolutionary organizations? How far have we really come? How far have we yet to go? And what are the sort of missing pieces that we might be able to use to unlock that? So we're going to get into that soon. But before we go there, uh, we must check in because we do it every time. For the first time ever, we will be doing it with a guest because this is our very first Freaky Friday flipping A and B block episode. That's so right. we're talking to Fred first and then you get to hear us babble on later. <laughs> so uh, Fred is going to join us for the check-in round. And the question we have for today is this one. If you had a theme song that played whenever you walked into a room full of people, what would it be? Uh, Aaron, let's start with you. Okay. Uh, it, it might be too on the nose, too on brand, but I'd have to say David Bowie changes. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> it's good. It's timeless. It's classic. It's not too aggressive. It's not too hip hop. It's. I feel like most people like it. They wouldn't hate me for it. I'm doing it. Yeah. You Fair know, enough. Our minds must have been connected because I got exactly 15 seconds warning about this question uh, before the podcast, and my mind was going to David Bowie too. You know, as heroes, we can be heroes. Yeah. And I don't know why that came up. I. I guess I, I hate the notion of the war for talent, right? Like mm. we use people so badly. I mean, there's so little of us that comes out in most organizations. And so simply the fact that, you know, yeah, we can be heroes. I like that. <laughs> nice. Uh, All right, Rodney, what about you? I, I'm going to deviate from the David Bowie fan club. Uh, there is a song that is an oldish song uh, by Fiona Apple called Extraordinary Machine. And yes. I've always loved that song and I've always resonated with this, that song. And as a personal theme song, the words, I'll make the most of it, I'm an extraordinary machine, play in my head in many difficult situations <laughs> to which I have to adapt. So I would love for everybody in every full room to know that that is the score. That's how you're coming out. Yeah, that's what we're doing. So Fred, we're so excited to have you here to talk about really the movement that was sparked by reinventing organizations. Uh, let's just start by asking you to tell us a little bit about the impetus behind the book. Um, you know, if anybody out there hasn't read it, just go read it right now and then come back and listen to this. But uh, but yeah, tell us a little bit about what sparked it. Yeah, it's actually a very personal story. I um, 
in spring of 2011, I suddenly had a, a moment of sadness and lack of energy, which I, I really couldn't place because everything in my life was going actually extraordinarily well. Like I had met this wonderful woman that would become my wife and, you know, we just became parents and and my work was meaningful doing coaching and facilitation. I worked little, I had, you know, made good money. Mm -hmm. I mean, everything was just fine and I couldn't place it. And it took me a while to realize that I suddenly was mourning this work that I had loved and this identity that came with it, that I was, you know, a coach for people in large corporations. And, right. and there was just something where I could no longer do it. Like my, I guess my personal growth or my spiritual growth had taken me too far from the kind of conversations that I was having in these organizations. Um, mm -hmm. I could still totally do it. I could still talk that language, but I was tired of this game of translation of this constant game of like, how far can I go until, you know, they don't no longer understand me until, you know, they, they think <laughs> that I'm crazy. And, and there was something even beyond that where really pretty much from one day to the next, I just couldn't go into these large organizations, just like the buildings felt so soulless. Mm. You know, these these big headquarters with marbles and glass and, and, and suddenly everything felt so soulless and everybody was running around a little bit like headless chickens and, you know, going for the <laughs> next budget cycle and the next, you know, three-year, you know, midterm planning. And, and it was part of me that just wanted to stop them and say like, do you still believe in any of this? And, <laughs> and so it was, it was obvious that I no longer believed in it. And, right. and so I, Pretty much from one day to the next, I, I told all my clients that, you know, I was, I was, you know, no longer going to work with them, and, and that then opened up sort of a, a chapter of what's next and uh, this question of, you know, how do we get together in organizations, was still really meaningful to me. Like, you know, how do we come together as as human beings to, to do amazing stuff? And, um, I was familiar with the work of Ken Wilber, who has this model that I use in, in the book about the, the stages of development. And so I had the language for basically what was happening to me, which was that I could right. no longer work with these, you know, he, he calls them orange, you know, machine mm -hmm. kind of organizations, you know, these metaphor that organizations are, are, are machines. And, and that was no longer working. And so um, I was wondering, like, what would other organizations look like, you know, when you know, if they were started by people who have a whole different outlook on the world, you know, who, who would look at the world and organizations like living organism, is that even possible? And what would that look like? And so that started me on this research, which really was trying to answer this very personal question to me, you know, what would a, a living organization look like, or in, in Wilbur's language, a teal organization look like? And, right. And that started me on that journey. And then, of course, the book kind of became a big deal. So, it, I mean, you know, it's uh, it's not in the traditional canon of business books, but, uh, you know, everyone in our space and many others have read it and been touched by it. What was really interesting to me is after the success of the book and sort of, you know, in the moment where it was really being handed from person to person, there was this sense from the outside looking in that you were reluctant, ironically, because of your check-in question answer, uh, <laughs> you were reluctant to play the hero and be the guru and kind of stand up some big answer and practice and and take advantage of that success. Can you talk a little bit about why you kind of stepped back and made some space? Yeah, I, I wouldn't phrase it that way. I, I don't okay. think I was reluctant or stepping back, but I, I had just in the years before sort of made this choice for myself that, you know, I was going to work pretty little and I was going to spend a lot of my time with my family and my children. And Crazy. already the <laughs> years before, you know, I only accepted clients in, in Brussels, in Belgium, where I lived at the time. 
because I, I didn't want to travel. And so the book, you know, when the book became successful, I was just like, hey, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> the book is becoming so successful. But there was really no reason for me to, to change any of these right. decisions. And so when I received suddenly tons of invitations to go speak everywhere in the world, well, no, I'm not going to travel because that was pretty much a decision I had already made. Like I want to be pretty much home with my children every night. And, and, and that's just a choice I, I made. Um, there was part of me also that, you know, the book became so incredibly successful that it was going beyond any expectations I had. So I felt like the book, it doesn't actually need me, right? Like, right, it, right. It, it's not like I need to be out there speaking every night and trying to promote or do something. It's like doing it's, the it's, work. It's doing the work, you know, much better than I probably ever, you know. But I, I've noticed how surprised people are. Like I, very quickly, I got lots of questions from people, not about the book, but about my personal life and my choices. And in the beginning, right, I right. was surprised by that because I felt like, yeah, you know, okay, I'm happy to talk about my life, but you know, my book is more interesting, I hope, than my life. And, um, and what I came to to realize is that the the place these questions were coming from was, I think, a real longing, a need to sort of hear another story than the story of maximization. Right. Mm -hmm. So there's, uh, um, there seems to be sort of this unconscious assumption because we live in a world that says that more is always better. That if you write a successful book, certainly if you write a successful business book, like the immediate consequence is that you go on a speaking <laughs> tour because that's, more. you know, how you make more money and that you right. take, you know, accept all of the interviews and go on TV because that's, you know, how people know you even more and that you, you know, build a consulting firm to sort of max out on, you know, because that's such, I think, a default assumption. Totally. Everybody was surprised that I wasn't doing that. And so asked me a question about that, like, so why don't you do it? And why don't you just stay home? And and I, I noticed that I think a lot of people were asking these questions almost as a way for themselves to contemplate, like, maybe I don't need to maximize and maybe I can step you know, out of that rat race. I know that certainly for me, it was super interesting. You know, one of the persons I, I cite a lot in the book is a man called Parker Palmer, and he's a wonderful writer right. and he's influenced me. And He's now in his, I think, late 70s. And, you know, he's been immensely successful and has kept a very simple life. He doesn't have an agent. He doesn't have a, an, an assistant or a secretary. And I, I know that it was important for me to have that example. Mm -hmm. um, so I could understand that, you know, for other people, it might be interesting simply to see my choices right. as, as a way for them to say like, hey, maybe I can actually make the same choices in my life. Yeah, we can't even see these possibilities until there's some models for them. It feels like such an inversion, yeah, of how that usually yeah. goes, which is like the book is meant to be a tool that leads to something else, not, a, Jumping not off the point. end of something. And it's so interesting. So what you were saying about, you know, Fred, you know, it sounded like you were reluctant. I get a lot, a lot of these projections where people say like, oh, you know, Frederick has been overwhelmed. And so, you know, ah, he, yeah. he moved back to his oh. eco-village because it was too much. And it's just interesting. Of course. Yeah. No, that's such a powerful misperception. And even, you know, even looking at the question now, I see what you're saying. So maybe say a few words about what you are doing now. So now it's been quite a while since it came out. The, there's, there is a movement afoot. And, and how, do you, how do you fill your time? What's next for you? Yeah, last summer I finished this project that was a continuation of reinventing organizations, but this time not in form of a book, but it's a, a video series. Right. Of uh, 130 videos, you know, on average 10 minutes, which shared everything I've learned since the book came out. And the question is slightly different. So the book was asking the question, is it possible to structure and run organizations based on a whole different paradigm, like a whole different worldview? Mm -hmm. um, you know, if, if leaders have done some inner work, some inner journey, maybe some spiritual journey, and they feel that the old management paradigm is working for them, you know, 
can we build organizations based just on a whole different outlook? So that was right. the question of the book. And as you say, like now there's this movement where there's like hundreds, probably, you know, thousands of, of organizations that are that are making this shift. And so the, the next big question is, okay, but so if we have a vague sense of this destination, but how do we get here, especially if we're a large traditional organization? Right. And so the video series, you know, shares everything that I've learned in the last few years about, you know, this, this kind of journey and, and the typical pitfalls and the things that work and things that don't work. And, um, and so I completed that last summer. And since then, I've, um, I've kind of closed the chapter of, of reinventing organizations. And I'm starting a new project with my wife that has to do with the, with the climate emergency and is, oh, is fascinating and, and, and very different. Um, Connected though, right? All these, all these, uh, crises we face are related to some of these similar mindset and, and, you know, complexity issues. Absolutely. I'm super curious to hear from you. So the, the journey around self-management and the emergence of these different kinds of paradigms, as you put it, uh, you know, I think are becoming more and more part of the popular consciousness uh, with every passing month and article. Uh, where do you think we are on this journey? Uh, you know, if if you think about sort of the stages of of development, of consciousness, of transformation of large, particularly corporate systems, how far have we come and how far do we have to go? My sense is that what has really shifted in the last five, six years since the book came out is there was a sense, I guess, five, six years ago of, of you know, the, the current system, you know, is exhausted and isn't working and it's frustrating, but there wasn't really a sense of very much alternative. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think we're completely past that stage. Like, I think everybody who wants to do something differently, who, f you know, feels sort of the inner urge to do things differently, you know, now knows that there's alternatives. And, you know, my book participated in that and, and you know, more recently your book, Aaron, and, and Holacracy and Sociocracy. So, you know, there's, there's plenty of things, but right. there's a clear sense that, no, we can do something different mm -hmm. and, and, <laughs> and it's working. And I, I think that's a huge shift. Then again, you know, the, the number of people who are really open to that and do it for the right reasons is still relatively small. Mm -hmm. What I find interesting and, and fascinating is that there's a number of larger organizations that are start, you know, starting to go in this direction. And I'm, I'm really eager to see the day when we see a really large, well-known organization that, 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 that makes a transition. Um, we're not there yet. The, the examples of, of organizations that have made the shift and that you know, are, are really happy with it and, and are thriving are mostly sort of small to medium-sized organizations right. at this stage, which is normal, right? Like For sure. these larger organizations just take so much more time to, to transition. Um, something else I would say is that clearly the train has left much, much faster in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, the things have exploded in Europe in a way that it, it really hasn't in the US. Um, so the US seems to be lagging a bit behind and, you know, I have no doubt that they will catch up at catch up we at some trying. point. Um, we are trying. We are trying. But so you know, the, the, you know, for every one organization I hear about in the U.S., I probably hear about ten or twenty or maybe fifty in Europe. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's it's really that that big of a of a difference. Um, and maybe it's because my networks are still a bit more in in Europe. So um, sure. But um, but some of the most interesting experiments, especially in large organizations, are are happening in Europe. So that's, I think, uh, one one place to look. And then, you know, I don't have a crystal ball for how things are going to change going forward, but I wouldn't be surprised that a tipping point might might be close, you know, that maybe in the next 10 years that there might suddenly be 
a tipping point, you know, as, as some of the younger folks grow into more senior roles, um, as, sure. as some of the, the frustrations in the, you know, the old system, you know, start to become something that people can really talk about openly and become commonplace. Um, you know, I look forward to the day where, you know, people have a conversation like, so, oh, so in your organization, you still, oh, you still have managers? Oh, okay. Uh, how quaint. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Um, <laughs> so would you say then that you are fundamentally optimistic about this still? Like nothing that you've seen, you know, in business or culture has, has led you to become more pessimistic since it came out? Um, no. I mean, uh, one thing that fascinates me is, is how differently these, these journeys, these transformations um, unfold. Like some some journeys seem to be really difficult. Others seem to be quite easy. And I, I don't think we know exactly yet why that is happening, why some cases are so much easier and more difficult than others. And I'm sure there's going to be setbacks. Um, I also, I'm also sure that some of the hype around some of these things is unhelpful. Mm -hmm. um, for sure. We simply want to do agile for agile's sake and you know, use some of the same te terminology, and, but still do it from an old perspective, an old paradigm of you know, simply let's try to use this to motivate people and make more money. And let's roll out certifications for capital A Agile to everybody and charge them for it, top dollar. <laughs> exactly, right? So certainly some of these things are, are, are unhelpful, but um, if I take the big picture, I mean, things are simply becoming more complex and the current system can't handle complexity. Mm -hmm. At the same time, more and more people do whatever form of inner journey of inner personal development and you know look at the world from a different perspective and, and just want different things. Right. And then certainly if you put together the the hopes and longings from the younger generation that, that go in the same direction. Um, so everything seems to be pointing to the fact that in some shape or form, you know, this will generalize. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I also think people in our space uh, trying to do this work in large organizations are currently benefiting from the fact that after decades of uh, extractive behavior, there's not that much efficiency left to strip out in a lot of places. There's a lot of bureaucracy that can be retired and looked at, but I I have a lot of conversations with leaders these days where they're like, we've just tried to get more X with less Y every possible way we can. Now we're exhausted. And so we might finally do something that feels counterintuitive to us because we're out of options, which is like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> however you get the window, right? To, to start having right. those conversations. And then for me, it's very important that we quickly shift away from the external reasons why you would do this, mm -hmm. you know, for sure, to the internal reason, you know, what, what is your own frustration and dissatisfaction and what is your own longing because um my experience is i i haven't seen a single example of a transformation that goes very far when leaders do this for external reasons even for the reasons that you just gave which is you know we're exhausted you know <laughs> nothing seems to be working so we're ready for something new right yeah um, yeah you know that that unfortunately isn't good enough. It's insufficient, um, necessary, yeah. but insufficient in some cases. Exactly. Absolutely. Exactly. Uh, one of the things we were really curious to hear from you is among the hype and the popularity of the book, what are some things that people commonly get wrong? Like, what are the, the misconceptions that you hear and you're just like, oof, that is not what I meant? <clears throat> there's, a, there's a number of them. One has to do with the sort of last chapter, um, sort of the third breakthrough, as I call them, um, around evolutionary purpose. Um, right. A lot of people simply read that as 
you know, the organization should have a purpose, a noble purpose, you know, so a mission statement. So I hear a lot of people tell me, um, you know, we're interested in self-management because, you know, the purpose thing we got, right? And so I ask about the purpose <laughs> thing and I really like, no, no, you know, we were talking about fundamentally different things here. Um, and maybe I wasn't, I wasn't clear enough, but what I meant with um, evolutionary purpose, which is a, uh, a phrasing that I borrowed from, from Brian Robertson, um, is the notion that the, the organization really is a living entity. Mm-hmm. That's how a lot of these founders and leaders of these organizations that I researched, you know, that that's the perspective that I have. That's how they talk about the organization. And so what that means is, um, and it, this, you know, might be esoteric for some people, but is that the organization really has its own, um, its own energy, mm-hmm. its own thing that it wants to manifest in the world, like its, its own sense of direction. And so it fundamentally challenges um, the basic premise of um, of the sort of predicting control mindset of modernity, which is, you know, the organization is a machine, a lifeless thing, and somebody needs to tell the machine where to go. Somebody needs to program that machine. Right, they have to fill it. Uh, and and when you look at, you know, organizations as living entities, everything becomes much simpler rather than, you know, trying to predict and control the future. So, you know, do all of the strategic planning and the budgeting and you know, um, and then get all of the targets and incentives and milestones and everything of that, you know, right? Um, instead of that, we actually listen to where the organization naturally wants to go. So, it, 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 you know, it's a, it's a much, much humbler stance and we constantly listen to purpose. So rather than the purpose being something declarative that you declare once and for all, mm-hmm. You know, then maybe re- you revisit it, you know, five or 10 years later, but you know, this is our purpose. Um, purpose is actually something you, you constantly try to listen to. Like every time you have to make a decision, important decision, say like, you know, let, let me try and sense like, you know, is this, you know, where this organization is trying to go to. Right. Listen um, to and listen for. Exactly. So that's that's clearly a chapter that's often misunderstood. Um, another thing that's that's misunderstood is, is, of course, a lot of things around self-management. And that is less surprising to me because... You know, this is such a, a new thing that, you know, in the beginning, we project all sorts of things onto mm-hmm. it, right? The, the most common misperception of self-management, obviously, is that self-management means, you know, no rules, no structure. Right. No rules, um, no leaders, no hierarchy. No leaders, no nothing. nothing. You know, it's it's just this uh, chaos, this, this chaos, this this playground where everybody can do whatever they want, you know, and, and, and you know. I don't know if it's the same in, in the US, but certainly in Europe, like a lot of images come up of the 60s and 70s and hippies. Sure, and, anarchy. You know, smoking pot and, <laughs> yep. you know, that. Um. So I am curious, you know, those misconceptions notwithstanding, and maybe this connects to that actually thematically, but a lot of people have built on top of the work since you wrote it, including us. Um, and what do you think about that? What do you What do you think when you see people, you know, using, leveraging, stepping on, how do you react to that? Is that challenging? Is it exciting? Hopeful? No, and in, in many ways, that's great. Like, I, I think it's it's great that, like, the more voices there are in this field, the more entry doors there are. Mm-hmm. You, know, um, you know, some people will resonate with my book specifically, and it's a great entry door, and other people will resonate with your book, Aaron, and that will be their entry door, and other people resonate with holacracy. And, you know, and so I think, the, you know, the more voices we have, you know, the better. Um, if, if people want, you know, in, in passing to reference my book, that's, you know, that's obviously even better. But I'm I'm generally delighted. Like, I feel like I've sort of done my work and then I'm glad that the field keeps advancing and keeps making progress. So speaking of 
progress, something that we've noticed inside the Ready over the last few years is that there's something happening in the broader culture, right? So if you look at the kind of organizational operating system and, and you know, living system that you were talking about, there's also this cultural and social and political OS that's happening. And there seems to be a real bifurcation between the kind of, you know, populist Trumpism, you know, r- retreat to authority kind of movement. And then this other movement that's, you know, intensely collectivist and, and really about looking for something different. And I'm just curious, as you observe that, what do you think is causing it and shaping it? And, and where do you think it's bound to go? Like, do you have a sense that um, does that give you some sense of hope or optimism? Does that maybe challenge what we're trying to do here in this more narrow organizational context? And and just, you know, how do you think about that when you're reading the news? Yeah, I, I personally find it really helpful to have a, a solid developmental lens. And so, you know, to, to look through work like, you know, Ken Wilber's Stages of Development or um, Spiral Dynamics, um, because what is really happening is that right now we have a number of very different worldviews that are online and that are clashing. And and often we oversimplify this when we say the culture wars and, you know, we see simply see it as a left and a right. Um, but there's actually four or five different um, worldviews that, that are, you know, clashing with each other right now. And, um, you know, it would take too long now to go into the to the details of that. But it's I, I think it's very, very illuminating. Um, to be able to distinguish these things. And I, I, I'm often a bit frustrated with articles I read in, in the news and I wish like, you know, I wish that the journalists knew about the, you know, these, um, these stages of development because they just explain so many things. But, but what's basically happening is that, you know, as evolution moves on, some of these earlier stages that, that feel left behind are really, really fighting very mm-hmm. hard. And, right. and it feels kind of like activated. it's... Exactly. And it, it, it feels like sort of a, a last battle, um, you know, before before they jump onto the next stage and, you know, evolution does its, does, does its thing. Um, so from a long-term perspective, I'm, I'm very hopeful because I just think that evolution, you know, just does its thing and, and can't be stopped. Um, but in the meantime, you know, it, it, it might get ugly. Um, and it is ugly right <laughs> I now. I think it has uh, got ugly. <laughs> And even in the ugliness, that's a very comforting way to think about it, is that uh, in the last gasps of things that no longer serve, it might get a bit ugly before it gets a lot better. Yeah, waiting for the inevitable, um, which seems like a pretty good place to draw things to a close. So, um, Fred, thank you so much for joining us tonight. Yeah, it was a pleasure. All right, let's take a quick break. And when we get back, Rodney and I are going to try to make sense of everything we just heard because it was a lot. Ready, set, go. All right, so that was uh, wide-ranging and far-reaching. It was. And, yeah, sort of philosophical, foundational, challenging. Um, I guess if I think about the ground we covered with with Fred, the first place I really wanted to dig in was what you thought about his comment about maximization, about the idea that, Mm -hmm. like, you write a book that sells a lot of copies. Obviously, the next thing you do in our culture is go on a book tour and sell a million copies and do speeches and build a consulting company, which was a little close to home for me because I think I just did all that (laughs) stuff. (laughs) 
<laughs> you did. <laughs> but uh, but I'm just curious how that landed with you and like what that made you think about about, you know, what I'm doing and what what's necessary. And I don't know how, how it made you feel. There was something about that conversation that felt very resonant to me, particularly in terms of the other conversation you and I just had about structure and doing structure work in a way that's emergent, which uh-huh. was that what I took from Fred's comments is the writing of the book was the synthesis and the conclusion of a huge body of thinking and work. And that in many ways, the book ultimately did speak for itself, which to him was a feature, not a bug. And what I've seen being around this process a couple of times is the inverse of that, where the book is used to codify, sense make, et cetera, create in many ways things that are missing versus just sort of formalize the things that we already know to be true. So I, I thought it was a really interesting look at that. And also, you know, I like I appreciate and I think it's quite noble to hear from someone who isn't out to make a bazillion dollars and, you know, have their book on a bestseller list. And also that's like not who I am as a person. So it also feels quite foreign to me, but I'm like, you know, good for you. That's rad. Um, Yeah. yeah, As a person who literally just did all of the things that he described not doing, uh, how did you feel about that discussion? Well, I think it's all about intentionality. And I liked, I liked his point of response, which was like, I had made a set of choices and then I just played those choices out and like, it happened to be successful, but my point was I wanted my life to look like this. And I think that speaks to a lot of the work we do in organizational change and design is like, what is your intent? Mm-hmm. And for me, the intention of, of my particular book was an invitation. Mm-hmm. It was actually supposed to be a way to short circuit and catch people up on a lot of thinking and work um, that would then allow them to decide, like, are they in or they out? for this next step, for this next opportunity that I actually really want to be a part of, that I love spending my days and nights and sometimes weekends, you know, chipping away at. So that for me is a different intent, which means there's a different yardstick. But I think the big takeaway for me that I really do respect is there are different intents. Like we Mm -hmm. don't all have to have the exact same programmatic response to every possible opportunity. We can actually stop and think and check in. So I thought that was a good, um, you know, kind of uh, take home message is like, what do you actually care about? And maybe just plug into that before you just go down the path of what everyone else does. Yeah. So understanding that people have different motivations and intent behind putting things into the world about the future of work or really anything. What role do we think that authors, thinkers, thought leaders, God forbid we use those words, uh, play in our space, should play in our space, do play in our space? Because I feel like uh, our space is quite crowded with people talking about new ways of working and organizing. And uh, I've not really, before our conversation with Fred, given a lot of thought to the folks who do that, but don't actually then, you know, do all of the other trappings. And it just, it kind of got me thinking about what that role is for us. It's funny, actually. I, I was in a car with one of our colleagues, um, Yehudi, the other day, and we were talking about a lot of this stuff. And he brought up this um, this sort of triad model from from his background, which was prophet, priest, and like kind of the governmental leader, the you know the prime minister or what have you. Mm-hmm. And was talking about how the role they each play, like the prophet's role, is disruptive. It is to kind of like provoke and challenge. The priest's role is kind of 
to, you know, enculturate and ritualize and kind of, you know, create these rhythms and habits in, in culture. And then the, the government's job or the kind of, you know, state leader's job is to kind of enforce that with, with rules and with structure, with laws, with things that kind of keep us safe from, from the outside. And at some level, I think the author's roles can, can move into any one of those you know, corners, right? You can be the one who's like, here's a really challenging idea that you're probably not going to like, or that will mm-hmm. like really spin your head. And that's one kind of book. You can do the thing where you're like, hey, here's how to like make this more soulful and more ritualistic and more humanistic and like connect to some deeper fiber or some deeper resonance. And then there's the other one that's just like the how to the rules, the structures, the the kind of framing that goes on. So maybe not a perfect analogy, but I, it stuck with me that he that he mentioned that. And I was thinking, you know, those are the roles we can play as authors and kind of quote unquote thought leaders, major air quotes on that. Um, and I think, you know, in my case, I really tried to do a bit of blending. Mm-hmm. Um, I didn't want to be too strong in any one lane. Um, and I think reinventing organizations to a certain extent is a little bit more prophetic and a little bit more, um, you know, ritualistic and soulful. So I think to his point about different doors, I think those are the different doors and in some ways the different stages of development of any idea. And we need all three, Mm -hmm. I think. Mm -hmm. How does that land with you? To me, thinking, publishing, writing, models, frameworks in our space serves two functions. As the practitioner who does this work a lot, it both can be an opening, like as you said, an invitation. It can be right. the, you know, the red pill, blue pill, as I hear you refer to it <laughs> a lot. Uh, it can be the awareness creation or like the the moment uh, that people see something else that's possible and get yeah. excited about it. And then also it can be quite reinforcing. So when I'm in the midst of complexity and transformation and doing this work that is quite emotionally and cognitively difficult, it can be very comforting uh, to be bolstered by the thinking and work of people who are outside of systems uh, researching (laughs) and studying and writing. And it also can be a really useful tool to be able to push that to clients and be like, don't just take my word for it. Right. Because um, because a lot of the things that a lot of the work that we're doing is upending centuries old tradition. And it's helpful if you've got some uh, some extra juice, you know, behind you when you're trying to it's do the, that work. It's the I'm not crazy. You're not crazy. We're not crazy mantra. Exactly. It is really helpful. To do, like, really every helpful. time I find another book or article or case, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's very, it's very exactly because we're like out on the edge here. Because yeah. you're on the edge and in a large system doing this work, you're one of 10,000 people. And the other 9,999 people look at you like you have six heads. And you're the person who's like, no, 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 just trust me. You guys, it's all going to work. Just stay yeah, with yeah. me. Uh, and so it can be really helpful to be like, has anybody read Reinventing Orgs? You mm-hmm. might like it. Check it out. Hand raise. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's tough to be the first one to like play Chuck Berry. I mean, you know, it's just <laughs> not, people are not ready. Um, not ready. Nobody likes Elvis, my, like, you know? That's like my favorite scene in Back to the Future, although it's a little bit culturally appropriative. Uh, but the idea that like, you know, everybody's just like, WTF, like we're not here for it. Yeah. And then a few years later, everybody's like, boom, we're ready. <sighs> Guy invented rock and roll. So one of the other things that uh, Fred hit on pretty hard was this idea that you know, the reasons for doing this, the reasons for changing the way we work are many, but the root or the kind of deep uh, abiding reason has to be 
connected to like a personal or a spiritual awakening, some kind of like, you know, intrinsic internal reason or transformation. Do you buy that? How did that land with you? How does that track with what you're seeing out in the world doing, doing change? I feel like for a leader to hold the space to do really significant transformation, philosophically, that transformation has to be aligned in some ways with his or her values. So on some level, that leader has to be down for less control, more humanity, more adaptivity, more curiosity, more and more, all of those things. Mm -hmm. That being said, um, I've been a part of successful transformations at a lot of levels of scale that really just started from a place of frustration combined with curiosity and not a larger awakening. So it's one of the areas that I'm really unwilling actually to take a strong stand on. I'm mm-hmm. very hesitant to come down on what he, what motivates people because <laughs> I just I feel like different things spark awareness and change in different people. And you look at any major transformation on an individual or a systemic level and I just think it's really hard to say where that comes from, like what the real germ and root is, and that it is always one kind of thing. Some leaders read an article and some leaders get yelled at in a board meeting and some leaders see their stock price tank. And I just think the beginning of this might look different for different people. And for some, it might be a higher order calling. And for some, it might just be like, man, I got to try something new. Like this Mm -hmm. is just not working for me anymore. I don't know. I think that whole idea of beginnings, too, is is a little bit myopic because, you know, when is the beginning, right? Is it the moment that you get frustrated? Is it the moment that you, like, do ayahuasca? Like, when is the moment when you're like, now that's the beginning of my awakening? And I actually find that, you know, the dough folds in on itself, right? Like, you, you do a thing, you try a thing, it changes your perspective a little bit. And, yeah, maybe to go all the way, maybe to be, like, the most teal, most human centric organization in the world that's a prerequisite. But I think that's more of an, of an imaginary destination than anything. And I'm much more interested in just progress, right? Like right. I would, I would rather the world be 10% more adaptive and more human everywhere than a hundred percent more adaptive and more human in 10 companies, mm-hmm. right? Like that, I just think like right. the net impact of that's better. And it starts this boulder. It starts this snowball effect of like, if we're 10% more of those things, it's going to beget 15 and that's going to beget 20. So at some level, I'm with you where it's like, it may well be a prerequisite of of the best cases. And I don't think we can let it stop us or hold us back from meeting people where they are. Yeah. I mean, I think you and I, neither of us are really purists in this work. <laughs> and I, I think about it, you know, I, I think about it similar to how coaching starts, coaching relationship starts with individuals. I often use the shorthand of AA. And like my my dad was an alcoholic. He was in and out of AA a lot when I was young. And not everybody goes to AA because they hit rock bottom. Some people go to AA because they have to. Some people do it because they're sick of a pattern they're in. Some people do it because their friend goes and they're like, it seems like he's getting a lot out of this. Like people do these things and start big transformations for a whole variety of reasons. And so I think, um, you know, the spark looks different. That's right. That's right. Yeah. And the, and the whole idea of 
we're going to end up somewhere as an illusion anyway. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. it's like, are we moving forward? Are we getting better? Are we getting more woke? Great. Like then I'm a happy camper. Right. And in some ways, you know, you say we're not purists. I actually still think of myself as a purist. Do I just you? don't. I do. I just don't let that influence the way I meet others. Like mm. I'm allowed to be a purist in my own life, in my own work, in my own company and be very radical and be very aggressive about like my stances on this stuff. And I just because I'm so such a big believer in participation and invitation, it doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter what I believe. <laughs> you know what I right. mean? Like even though I'm I'm pretty zealous about some of this stuff when it really comes down to it, but it doesn't that shouldn't shape the way I go to market and the way I meet people. That's funny. We should argue about that someday because I would argue okay. that you m may be a purist, but you're also an incrementalist. Yeah. Isn't that weird? Which is the hedge on your on your puritanism. Yeah, I think I think I am hedgy about it. And and again, we can have yeah, maybe that's a whole other episode about like unpacking my psychology. <laughs> Yay! Um, Tune in, everybody. Okay. <laughs> All right. So so changing gears for a second and pulling way out from the company space to the cultural space and the social operating system and the economic operating system. Um, there was this mention of kind of the last gasp of conservatism, this idea that as we're moving through these phases of development, there is going to be that moment where it kind of snaps back and like claws and fights. It's like the movie when you like try to kill the bad guy and there's like that one last like Michael pops up <laughs> and He's they have to shoot him you. again, you know, and they yeah. never shoot him in the head twice. So is that do you buy that? Is that what's going on with with the whole, you know, political environment and social environment right now? Has Michael Myers like popped up one more time or is it worse than that? I have no idea, but I took a lot of comfort in that comment from Fred, <laughs> and I'm buying it because it makes me feel good. Because it feels good. <laughs> yes. Yeah, like, Hell yeah. I'll buy that I love that explanation for what is going on right now. I It will help me sleep at night and also uh, be present to my own frustration in the mm -hmm. current dynamic, particularly politically. I don't know. What did you think? Same. I mean, I think I've always had this weird belief that, you know, I don't think that that cultural or, or biological evolution has an agenda. I don't think that there's some like destination we're supposed to end up at as a culture or a people. But I do believe that, you know, the way the world and the universe works, there is a sort of uh, movement and an inertia and way of things that does seem to be unstoppable. Mm -hmm. And so I did, I, it, did it does resonate with me that, um, you know, people are just going to get more and more and more complexity conscious and more and more and more aware of like the fact that human flourishing is a thing we actually need to care about or we're not mm -hmm. going to be here anymore. And so if you believe that we're going to be here anymore, which I think is the first big leap, then I think it kind of follows that like, yeah, you're going to go through these cycles and waves. There's lots of different paradigms and mindsets of alive in culture at one time and they're constantly battling with each other. And whichever one ultimately serves the most is going to come out on top over time, but we don't know whether that's 50 years or 100 or 1,000. So, you know, assuming that that our current mindsets and incongruence doesn't kill us from climate change before we get there, I'm very optimistic. Yeah, I think like, like yeah, we, we need to put one more one more stake in Dracula's heart mm -hmm. and then we can, you know, move forward into a, into a more collectivist future. Yeah, and if we share that view, I also think it can really help us in the moments where the monster does rear its head really aggressively. Yeah. To just be like, I see what you're doing there. Progress is inevitable. Fighting for your up. life. 
<laughs> well, yeah. And also, like, you can kind of empathize with this notion that, like, these yeah. different parts of ourselves, of our ego, of our social identity, like, when they're fighting for their lives, they're going to perk up and be really aggressive. And if you know that, you can kind of, I don't know, like, yeah, sit with some comfort and some recognition of, like, what's actually happening. Yeah. And at the most basic level, it's like for anyone who's ever gone on a diet in their lives, the <laughs> night before, did you not eat a bunch of shit that you shouldn't have eaten? Yeah, of and the night did. after too. Like that's what we that's what we do. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Before the shift. So you and I both think a lot of Fred's book, and obviously it had quite an impact in terms of opening up this whole category that we play in. Why do you think it was this one? Why do you think reinventing orgs worked better, did more, impacted more broadly, had more ripple than others that came before? So I think I think there's a few things converging here that are important because I've thought deeply about this, partly for selfish reasons, because before I put a book out in the world, I was like, let's understand how this how this category works. And as I've mentioned many times on this podcast, just to the left of me right here are two massive bookshelves full of books that, as I've said many times, and I say in the opening to Brave New Work, contain all the wisdom of anything I've ever said or offered. Mm -hmm. Like it's all there. It's all been there. Mm -hmm. I think so. I think a couple things have happened. One. Most of the books that came before were either written from the perspective of one company, one leader, one culture, right? Like we're the edge case, we're the wild ones at XYZ company that have done this differently. So I'm pointing there to someone like Ricardo Semler and what he mm -hmm. did at Semco down in South America. Like great stories, amazing books, very inspirational, but they're easy to write off as like, well, that's one, one that's an N of one. Yeah. The other kinds of content that was out there was very theoretical and very academic and very kind of opining, right? Early sociocracy books, early books about, you know, new ways of thinking and working, early um, McGregor, like all that was mm -hmm. like academic to the point where it's also very interesting and very novel, but easy to write off as like, well, who knows if it's real, right? Like who knows if that's really how it works? And mm -hmm. so you can read it and be inspired, but still put it down. At some level, I think what Fred's book did really well is is bring all that together to say, like, here's a way of thinking and a theory that gives you a mental model. And here's a bunch of reporting, essentially, like the in-depth reporting from a variety of different companies and continents that makes you feel a little bit more like this is happening, like it's mm -hmm. a thing and it's more of a movement. And so I think it did that really well. And the last thing I would say that that the book really had in its favor was this idea that the culture had shifted underneath our feet where in the 50s and 60s and 70s and mm -hmm. 80s and 90s and 10s, there was complexity, but not at the level we're seeing today, right? We just weren't seeing the interconnections and the challenges and the speed and the pace and the tech and all that, you know, that we weren't having those kinds of events that really challenged our thinking. And so the ground just wasn't as fertile. And I think mm -hmm. it just really lined up well of like, here's a book with the right kind of architecture and the right reporting and the ground is just like really loose under our feet. And so people that were waiting for that could really cling to it. So yeah. that's, you know, maybe maybe I've thought about that more than most people, but that is definitely <laughs> like my my working, uh, you know, theory on that. So the last thing I wanted to ask you about, and it was one of those questions that I actually wanted to really get into with Fred, and then we just ran out of space and time, is the perennial question in this space other than how, which is why isn't this spreading faster? It's so obviously better, quote unquote, right? That's the way we all talk about it. These ways of working are better. They're, they're, they serve us better. They're more delightful. The people that are inside these systems swear by it. And yet, um, you know, less than 
1% of all companies in the world even have language to talk about what the hell we're talking about, much less actually do it. Given everything you heard and everything we've talked about so far, why do you think that is? And what do you think will be the thing that changes or tips that? I'm going to take a not very global view on this and just talk about the individual. (laughs) For better or worse, mostly worse, the human condition is such that we are more comfortable repeating dysfunctional patterns than trying novel new things that might be better for us. Mm. And that is who we are as animals. And that means that we are very able to adapt to suboptimal situations and circumstances and somehow manage to survive in them. And that unless and until all of the new ways of working and organizing in the being become the norm, it's a bit of a chicken and egg problem (laughs) where it's like not enough of us recognize this way of being as being normal and being comfortable and being low cognitive load for us. And so I just think it's like critical mass and reps so that Mm -hmm. we have enough humans with enough experience of enough new ways of being that it feels like a comfortable historical routine for them and not something novel and hard and new to try. I love that. And if you zoom out far enough, you know, sometimes we think like, oh, well, it's only been, you know, 109 years since Taylorism was born. Like, why isn't this going faster? Well, Maybe the change that we're embarking on here is bigger than that. Maybe this is about rewiring things that go back centuries or that go back thousands of years. And so maybe if it takes us 50 or 100 years to get this right, maybe that's actually screaming fast. You know what I mean? Like maybe we're doing fine. I really do. I think that that's um, I think that that's true. And And it seems, you know, a comforting, a comforting thought to sit with. I think if this whole next wave of working is a 500-page book, we have written like four pages of it. (laughs) I remember that feeling. Rodney, thank you for joining me today. You're so welcome. You know, God damn it. Um, So look, folks, listeners, did you like the Freaky Friday show structure? Did you like it, Rodney? How did you feel about it? The jury's out. You're not, you don't even care for it. Um, I'm curious what you think. If you listen to this, if you're used to hearing us where we do the A block together and then the guest in the B block, Today, for the first time, we did it the other way around. What do you think? We'd love your feedback, what you thought was better, what was worse. We can use that to make the show better, regardless of what way we go on structure. Um, And with that, I will throw a quick uh, tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making us sound good every time. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready, where we help organizations around the world change the way they work. You can get in touch with us by emailing podcast at theready.com. Like I said, give us your feedback, give us your ideas, give us your guest ideas. We want more diverse guests on the show. We want people we haven't met before, haven't heard from before. You can be the ones that uh, connect the dots for us there. And if you like what you're hearing, drop us a review. Even better, forward the show to a friend. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something. Change something.